Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars pertaining to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2019. Episode 249, Insights Forged in the Dark. Presented by Strash Asimovic and John Lebeuf Little. I'm John Lebeuf Little. Uh, that's Strash. Uh, we are Opcard Games. We make Forged in the Dark games. Oh wow, it kind of picks me up, doesn't it? It's good to see you all. Uh, we're going to talk about how to make your own Forge in the Dark games, but I also want to get from you all what you're interested in talking about, because this is sort of non-directed. So, what are you interested in hearing about? Anyone? Belt it out. What are the main components you see of a Forge in the Dark game, and how do they interact? Cool. Awesome. We'll definitely cover that. Do you have to dice pool? Do you have to dice pool? That's a good question. We'll, we'll cover that. Uh, any others? Yeah? Kind of like a bucket of equipment lists that like really add flavor to a playbook. Cool, awesome, yeah, that's a very specific question. We wouldn't have covered that, but now we will. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so... Um, alternate uses for the, the collaborative creation of what's normally like a crew or a ship. Or oh, yeah, yeah, like what you can do with your quote-unquote crew sheet. Turns out a lot. Um, I actually saw a really cool design this con that uses a different idea for a cruise sheet. Uh, it was really, really pleasing. Yeah, it was very cool. Daniel. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Daniel's, yeah. Daniel's design is very nice. Uh, yeah, Strash. Hey, you want to I'm Strash. Woo! Uh, I'm one of the people that wrote Scum and Villainy and Band of Blades, and I guess technically now, uh, Into the Dark. Into the Dark. Uh, Hello, everyone. Thank well, you for coming to the panel. Some, some half of Perseus is, is excited. plays in Forge in the Dark. I know you Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do I know you? No. Oh. Uh, Strash is the famous one, does lots of streaming, does all sorts of cool stuff. He's on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but nobody knows me because I don't tweet. Uh, <laughs> solidarity. <laughs> I can see a few of you have similar policies. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're going to start talking about what is Forge in the Dark? Is that's that our that's first topic? The, yeah, what, yeah, what is Forge in the Dark is a, is a great question. Amazing. Yeah. I want everybody here to just jump in and and I'll, I'll reach with me and I'll jog the pink on you or something just so that I can go for forward. it. I'll write down everything people say. So, yeah. what Where do you think is the component of Forge in the Dark games? Dice pools. Dice pools, alright. What else? Resource management. Cool. Uh, fiction, mechanics, interaction. Fiction, yeah. mechanics, interaction? Not PBTA moves. Yeah, not be defining their negation. But it's okay, we'll talk about that. That's awesome. The, the, the group as a character. Oh, alright. That's cool. that's phases of play. Like the downtime score kind of cycle. Downtime uptime cycles? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have one or Oh yeah, yeah, cool, awesome. Flashbacks. flashbacks. Oh yeah. yeah. There you go. Flashbacks are so good. Remember that time you said flashbacks? <laughs> the group, the, the group character concept, the, the crew, the band, the, or the uh, the ship. The, the awesome. Oh, uh, resistance rolls. Oh yes. 
clocks. Clocks changed how I run literally every other game now. Special armor. It's very specific. <laughs> <laughs> it's Keep coming up with stuff because I'm enjoying the shit out of this. <laughs> Just like watch Strash ride all day. <laughs> I'm going to write down a thing. Yes. yes. We good? tell you all a story real quick. Uh, does anybody here know where Vand or where uh, Blazendark came from? No, no, no. I mean, like, what, what incited it? So John Herbert comes from a very old school of thought, and by very old school, I mean he's infected me with this, so people today are doing this. And one of the things that happens is sometimes you answer a question about design by designing the game, right? So for example, two years ago, I heard somebody in this hall who's very famous and I'm not gonna name because I don't wanna throw him under the bus say, you can't hack Blades in the Dark because it has too many elements that you can't change. You can't change how the phases are done. You're never gonna be able to change like how a crew sheet is done. And I was like, oh really? And that's how Band of Blades came about. So uh, one of the things that happened is John Harper was on, at the time, G+, um, and uh, <laughs> Somebody point. Somebody Rest says, in an apocalypse world moves, you can't have position and effect. You can't have fictional positioning influence the outcome of moves. Moves were uniform black boxes, where once you enter into a certain set of inputs, you would exit into a certain set of outputs. And no matter what you did before, it wouldn't affect how that move worked. And Harper was like, that's untrue. So he wrote a game that was a single move. That was basically what we today consider the position and the effect chart, only he used the coin flip at the time. And what he showed was that the difference in the input affected the output, all right? So he wrote that as a joke, uh, and at the time he was running Ghost Lines, I don't know if anybody's familiar with that, it's a QBTA game, involves trains and people defending them from ghosts in Badlands, and they realized that Ghost Lines did not have enough of a mechanical structure to support long-term play in the parts that they were interested in. They realized that they wanted to have like factions and rebellion and all sorts of other stuff, but this was a two-page game, it was very primitive, and it wouldn't support that, so because his friends were interested in that, uh, and uh, he, he decided to, to write Blades in the Dark. Blades in the Dark also came from a World of Dungeons game they played with uh, Paul Riddle and Dylan Green and a couple other people, and they broke the world and created this ghost-covered world, which is where, where the setting come from. Uh, so in any case, the original version of Blades in the Dark that I saw was 47 versions before what you actually see coming out of the Kickstarter. Um, and what it had was just this like one move. And, and he actually divided it into two moves, one of which was called aggressive stance, one of which was called defensive stance. So I guess the thing that I want to say is the very heart and core of Blades in the Dark to me is actually this. It's position and effect and fiction influencing mechanics. I think you can get rid of everything else 
and it will stabilize in the dark as long as you adhere to that particular tenant. Uh, now, I don't think you should get rid of everything else. Uh, as a matter of fact, John and I have experimented with a whole bunch of designs, and we've discovered that this, and this, and uh, to some extent this is kind of what we, so like, don't listen to me as an expert. Like, I may have written a book, but that's bullshit. All of you can write a book, too. Um, Two books. Th but these are the things that we found. If you remove it, um, you start reaching for it, like, in a, in a Blades-like setting. Like, as in, if you've played enough Blades, and then you try playing Blades without these mechanics, you're going to look for them. If you don't have a crew sheet, no problem. Yeah, like, your character is still competent. You still have a plot. As long as we all know we're thieves, we don't have to have a special sheet that tells us what our powers are. You can still play that game. Still gonna feel like Blades. Like, is it gonna be exactly Blades in the Dark? Probably not, but like, you're not gonna feel like you're in a weird new space that you have to relearn how to navigate. Um, whereas, if you don't have stress, you can't push, you can't resist. But so, stress is actually just a secret way of managing pushes and resists, right? So like, you can't push and resist without stress. Stress is what like limits that so that you don't do that all the time. But pushes and resists, and uh, official position, right? Like those are sort of like the, the key things that we found are. Uh, that said, legally I believe you can call your game Force and Dark as long as you use anything from the SRD and include a picture. So that is the legal definition right. of Force and Dark. <laughs> so it's important to say like, okay, so we have around, well, we have this core concept we think that Blades is about, and there are all these other pieces. The discussion really ought to be, what do those pieces do, and when should we include them, and what should they look like when we do include them? Uh, as opposed to, like, what do I need in order to check off to make a Force in the Dark game? It's more about what can I have, and what do those things do for me when I have them? So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, position effects. Um, we should talk a little bit about uh, some of the design philosophies of. Blades of the Dark, or you know, Forge of the Dark games. And for me, one of the core concepts inside Forge in the Dark is this idea that we're in a conversation negotiating about what's going on in the fiction. And that's really what setting position and effect is about. We have a conversation saying, well, I see this this way. Is it risky? Is it dangerous? Is it like desperate? Um, do I have great effects? Is this like something I'm not great at? Like, what is that conversation that we're having? And so uh, going back and forth. And this concept of negotiation, I think, kind of permeates through the rest of all of these mechanics. So you say, like, what about flashbacks? Well, isn't that us just negotiating about what could have happened in the past? Like, that's, it's, a, it's another form of negotiation. One of the things that I want to jump on, what John is saying, somebody actually mentioned something really cool. I don't know if I wrote it down. I was writing as fast as I could. Oh, setting. Uh, somebody mentioned that there are these like fairly robust yet somewhat open settings. Uh, one of the consequences of having position and effect is the fact that in order to understand whether something is inherently risky, you need to have a setting. That's not very hard if what you're doing is like urban fantasy, because we all know, oh, okay, if you're trying to jump off the second story of a building, we can kind of gauge how risky that is, because we understand what a second story is and what it looks like when a person jumps out of a second story. But if somebody casts a spell, we have no idea if that's risky or not, because that requires somebody else to tell us what is the definition of the world. So consequently, uh, the thing that I tell most Forge in the Dark designers is, first off, be very clear on what your world is. 
because it's very hard to write a Forge in the Dark game. They're very bad at generic setting or just like make up anything because like that doesn't work. You need to be grounded in the fiction and you need to be grounded in like a, a physical concept that you can comprehend. But uh, Forge in the Dark games work best when you're doing very physical actions. So John and I actually had this discussion when we started working on Throne of the Void. Yeah. Uh, we realized that Blades is very bad at modeling the Gamjabar scene from Dune because it's very good at modeling can you get on a sandworm. It's very good at modeling can you do a knife duel, but it's very bad at modeling what is my internal monologue and how do I resist something and make this scene more exciting than just, well, I've already resisted it, so I make a resistance roll, so it's fine, right? Like, uh, there are things that Forge of Dark is good at, which is uh, it loves very action-driven, concrete, physical kind of uh, scenes. So it loves doing things like Mission Impossible, like that, that, that would be a great Force in the Dark game, right? Lots of action, very physical, jumping from building to building. You know how risky that is, it's desperate, but like, you know, it's, it's gonna work out, it'll be fine. Uh, it likes competent characters, so making incompetent characters and blades can get tricky. It won't feel like, you can do it, you'd have to remove <laughs> things like pushes and stuff like that, but it's not gonna feel like Blades in the Dark, right? It's not gonna feel Force in the Dark. Uh, and there's stuff that it's not uh, that's that it's not great at a lot a lot of like willpower internal monologuing that kind of stuff it is not really super well designed to emulate there's a reason why the dots are called actions right uh, so let's take a moment what are the questions that are in your heads right now yeah what go ahead moves moves uh, so I really like blades because it says these are your stats can make a move on your stat, and I don't need to get another sheet to say, what are my PPTA things? Absolutely. There's a secret there. Um, <laughs> you said that that was not a fortune in the dark thing, and that you did get rid of those PPTA moves. Please explain. Let's talk about that. So a core move in, in PPTA, so John Harper tells everyone, ah! Blades in the Dark is a PPTA game, and legally that is true, because you can call anything a PPTA game, uh, just ask Mike. Uh, but what he actually did is, yeah, he, he set certain moves up as your character moves, but there is actually a secret. There are three core moves, and that's it, in Blades in the Dark. They're called uh, Controlled, Risky, and Desperate. So if you read the Controlled, Risky, and Desperate, what it says is, when you are in a desperate situation, this is what that looks like, this is what you roll, and these are the possible three outcomes. When you enter a desperate roll, right, like when you're taking a desperate action, what do you do? You roll an action, so that's the same thing as saying like roll plus hot or roll plus hard, right? Except that it's a die pool, but yeah. you can negotiate that. And then you have your uh, 10 plus, six, seven to nine, four to five, right. and one, two, three, right? So like all he did was condense all of Apocalypse World into three basic moves, which are anytime you're controlled, anytime you're risky, anytime yeah. you're desperate. Now so it's a technicality, but it is a technicality that Harper stands on very hard. Yeah. So essentially, you do have a separate sheet, and that separate sheet is the position and effect chart. Um, so that's what I meant. I wasn't trying to be super tricky, that's why I said like, well, there's, it's kind of a catch, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm happy to explain it, but uh, in a way, he just replaced going aggro with What's the position of going aggro in this particular fiction? Yeah. So. There's there's a lot of um, like what is AW in in a discussion of what is Forge in the Dark, 
right? And so the discussion of like moves, what is a move? And a move is really just like that fictional trigger that leads to a mechanical resolution system that then leads to fictional outcomes, right? So it's that three basic structure. And that's really what that grid does for you. So you can conceive of it in that move system. Uh, even though that's like, we all know there's, there's a, a couple of asterisks in there, right? And, and if you consider them two separate products for your own mental bucketing, no one's gonna blame you. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's worth at least talking about. There were other hands, so it was you and maybe you. Um, yeah. Uh, questions that you had? I'm gonna go over first. Uh, I guess like the end, one I'm interested in, like, what's the best way of like teaching it in the text? Like, cause, like PBTA, like there's like a particular way to play, and that makes sense. And then there's Forge of Dark, and there are a lot of people who like play one or the other. I mean, I play both. Yeah. Like a lot of people play one or the other, and the the skills don't translate. And so like, how do you teach people sort of like system mastery in Forge of okay. Dark? Okay. Okay. So the there's there's that's that is a wonderful like whole topic area. Yeah. Where there's like a bunch of questions in there. Um, I will say that. Uh, I've written a bunch of the text in our first two books that have to do with that. And in our first book, Scum and Villainy, I kind of took what Harper did and just sort of like did it again in my own words. <laughs> and I was like, this will hold, it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And then as we went into Band of Blades, I was recognizing that like there are some slight changes that I'd like to do here or there. And so I just we restructured or fine-tuned the language and so we're getting better as we go about discussing it uh, in terms of like teaching the system to somebody um, the very first thing there's like always this competition so what I tell people when they are designing a game to, to start with what is your game before we get into like how do you make the system work for you like really have a good concept of what your game is and then that will help you drive all the mechanical decisions you make. Because this is a, basically an a la carte design system, right? You can say like, do I need a cruise sheet? If I do, why do I need a cruise sheet, right? But if you understand what your game is about, you can sort of start making those decisions earlier in the design process and you can make better decisions because you, you have reasons for them. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that said, um, your question was about uh, teaching actions. I guess like just I think actions tend to be pretty intuitive, but I like definitely find that people sort of like don't get the second layer of it, like how to like position yourself in the picture. Oh, when should they push themselves? When should you resist things? Like how do you teach like the, like sort of how to play the game on like that next tier of like in, engagement? In terms of actually playing it at the table, the best thing to do is to like always ask like let's have a discussion. Let's say like what position do you feel like you're in, and like bring in that bring them into the discussion. Um, I think that when you write it up as text and you say like, hey, let's talk about setting position and effect, you should always encourage the people at the table to be having that discussion, right? So that's an important part for me um, because like, again, the design philosophy of negotiation being sort of permeated through the design, um, if, you don't, uh, if you don't encourage the reader to like have that discussion with them, then you end up in this very default state where the GM sets the position and effect, and it's sort of like categorical, and it's you, there's no negotiation about it, and that's a thing that like blades doesn't work as well if there's one person who's just making that decision. Uh, in D and D, actually in most most games, period, when the GM says things, uh, thing it becomes part of the fiction. So if I say you were shot for seven hand points, 
You just mark off your hit points, you don't question it, right? But Blades doesn't do that. And one of the cool things about that is that when I'm running Blades, I run hard. Like, I tell people, like, how bad things are going to get. And, and in particular in Bandit Blades, that works really well, right? Because I know that the players have a toolkit to stop that. So when I'm first running a game, uh, I will oftentimes put them in a very lethal situation straight up front and then tell them that they can say no. And I, I, I oftentimes model that behavior with like a, like a gesture. I specifically do nope. And then uh, they get used to it. Like sometimes they'll see me like put up my hand and someone will be like, oh, I resist that. So like, uh, it's, uh, so for example, if you look at Scum and Villainy, there's an, I've actually had GMs ask me this. They're like, this is a horrible scenario. And I said, why? And they're like, we shoot a bunch of players right at the start. And I was like, cool, they resist that. And he's like, yeah, wait, what? I was like, yeah, that's to teach the resistance mechanic. Like, I'm just like, yeah, the guy is shooting through a wall. How do you dodge it? That's a resist. Do the resist, now you're awesome. And so like, uh, it's one of those things that takes like a bunch of reinforcement and you can look at our text. Like if you take a look at the skill descriptions, every time there's like a, a bad outcome, the GM always asks, do you want to resist that at the end of the questions right. and stuff like that. So you, have, you can, one of the cool things that Harper did that we copy all the time in our text is we do player best practices and GM best practices. And one of the things you really just want to do is Remind people a bunch, like it's gonna be your job for a little bit, but like oh, okay. if you put that in the best practices and then you put that on the GM sheet as a best practice, honestly, that's the best you can do. Like th there just comes a certain point where like, look, I'm not only giving you the tools and I'm not only reminding you of the tools, now you have to carry it the rest of the way, right? Yeah. And for my, for, for my efforts, I feel like there's no time that it's bad to, to bring up that. <laughs> like you can be like anywhere in the text. Like yes, do have it in the GM section. Have it all throughout the text. Yeah. Like just like constant reminders. Constant reminders. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I oh, apologize. Sorry. This feels a little nitpicky. What's the difference between saying he shoots you in the head and waiting for somebody to say resist and saying he's going to shoot you in the head and going to do anything about it? Uh. That's a good question. Um, so the resistance mechanic fundamentally relies on, I'm gonna do a bad thing to you and you have to make a decision about what you're willing to pay in order to avoid that bad thing. Yeah. Like that's part of what resistances are. If I say he's gonna shoot you in the head, then, then it's like, okay, then you're gonna take, take an action if you're gonna try and avoid it. You're like, cool, I'm just gonna, you know, whatever happens, happens, but I'm gonna do something else instead. If that's the situation you're in, then it's appropriate. You could say, like, he's gonna shoot you in the head, what do you do? And then you make an action roll, and the consequences of that action roll can determine whether he does actually shoot you in the head. But importantly, when you make a roll, and you have a result of that roll, and you're applying a consequence from that roll, that consequence needs to be real, and it needs to be visceral, and it needs to be immediate. So those things all have to be, like, the result of your roll, or it's not a result, right? So, yeah. Can you resist it? Can you interrupt that? Yes, because the whole point of this design philosophy is negotiation. I tell you a thing, and then you say, well, hold on, can we talk about this? <laughs> like, can I do a resistance role? Yeah, and if, if the, and the answer is always yes, right? Because that's the part of this, that like, negotiate doesn't work if I can just tell you this is what happens, right? So you have that option to say, like, no, I think it goes a different way, and then we, what, all we're doing is establishing costs based on you know, the stress mechanic. Also, bear in mind that as written, so like, again, this is the way it is in Blades, it doesn't have to be in your hack. Um, resistances don't negate an action. So if somebody is going to shoot you, you're going to say, ah, they shoot me, but it's not that bad, and this is why. 
uh, it, he, he would have shot me right through the heart, except I'm wearing armor. He would have shot me right through the heart, except I grab his arm and I tilt it to the right, and now it's only a glancing blow, right? right? So you don't say, no, nah, he didn't shoot me. Or like, I dodged. He never even landed the blow. It's usually like, I make it a little bit less bad, right? Like, resistances tend to like, they can sometimes like negate effects to the point where it's really not bad, but like, uh, depending on which system you're using and how, like, what genre your GM is like trying for. But in general, a resistance never negates an action. If you miss the roll to make the jump, you don't make the jump. But instead of falling down to your death, you might clutch the ledge. So you still miss the jump, but it's not as bad, right? Like yeah. a resistance shrinks the bad outcome to the point where it's manageable. So you see what would have happened to a normal person, and then you're like, ah, but I'm a Blades character. <laughs> so like, I have stress, I could resist things. Yeah. And then you resist that, and you're like, ah, I was awesome, right? So. Right. Which is why the default mode for Blades is that resistances reduce rather than eliminate, is so that you don't have that moment of, what you said is totally not true. Anybody else you've got a question? More questions? Shall we go with, go on with the next bit? All we were going to talk about is like what Forge in the Dark does well and what it doesn't do. And oh, schnankies. I may have jumped ahead. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's, it's all good. Uh, let's, let's start talking about that, and we'll come back to more questions, right? We'll just, it's sort of interactive. Uh, Forge in the Dark, good at um, heists, right? Very good at heists. It does the flashback mechanics, it has this crew idea, right? It does those things well. What else does it do? Um, we came up with this term where we called it uh, action-driven narratives. So stories that are primarily about big characters, like, you know, like presence-wise, big characters, um, taking actions to drive a story, right? To change the story. Um, things you do uh, have consequences, uh, and so those consequences are are gonna gonna ripple through. So like, there's always like this idea of like you're probably gonna get to do the change that you want to do. We're only really gonna determine like what does that cost you, um, and then they are you're playing someone who has like a powerful. Um, uh, you're playing a powerful character that has agency, right? Uh, yeah, so what else? <laughs> Have we covered it all? Yeah, covered it all. Awesome. What do you guys think? Yeah. Uh, in the back. Uh, well, for underdog stories. Underdog stories. Okay. Not, not only are these characters yeah. larger than life, but they are yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of like people on the on the bottom that are struggling upwards there's definitely um, if you get into that notion of tier if you're keeping tier that's more present if you lose tier it can be negotiable <laughs> yeah yeah I'm sorry mechanics uh, what is the inherent difference between 2d plus 1 versus dice pool if I don't like dice pool. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's so let's have the dice pool conversation. Yeah, yeah. Do you a, need to have a dice pool? Uh, I, I feel like it's... I, I really like it. <laughs> I really like it. So <laughs> I, 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 let, Let's talk about why I like it, okay? So um, the curve on dice pool probability is different, right? Like this is a math thing. It's about right, mapping right. the function to the results. Uh, a 2d6 pool <laughs> is actually going to have a very specific bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas a die pool has a shifted bell curve that the more dice you add is going to keep shifting the central focus to the right. 
which is the same thing as, as 2D6, but 2D6 has a much broader, uh, it, it has a broader range on both ends, uh, whereas a, the D6 take highest mechanic will eventually, eventually start favoring, um, it'll, it'll definitely lessen the range at which you could possibly fail, and it will uh, broaden the range at which you will at least get a partial success to the point where that becomes like the majority of the rolls, but it doesn't quite as quickly accelerate full successes. Right? Because if you do uh, 2d6 plus 4, you have a 97% chance of getting a hit. Right? And that, if we talk about PBTA as a conversation, um, if you think about it, on a 6 minus, the GM gets to talk. On a 7 to 9, you and the player get to talk. On a 12 plus, only the player gets to say things. And if the player is talking 97% of the time, you will have a very stilted conversation. And so um, very similar things will happen with die pools because if you have nine dice, you're practically guaranteed a six if not a crit. But one of the things that you can do is you can control that, that, that valve a little bit better, right? With, with um, position effect. Yeah. Position effect is part of it uh, because even if the person has a high chance of rolling a six, you can make the threat real, right? Uh, but more importantly than that, what I mean by that is, you'll notice that in Scum and Villainy we have a three die cap on skills. And if you pay close attention, Harper makes it very, very likely that that's going to be the case in like blue coats and stuff like that. And the reason for that is because we're checking to see how is the fiction affected by adding more dice, right? Because so, like if the cap is six, then what you're talking about is vastly heroic fiction that's almost going to guarantee specific outcomes, but that curve is a little bit softer, right? Like the difference between two dice and three dice is different than 2d6 plus one. Um, a lot of times the, <laughs> the dice are more likely to betray you in an apocalypse world system. It's the same reason why we don't use a single die, right? So like in, in something like d20, you can land anywhere on that 20 and the range is very wide. And so, and so it can feel swingy um, and it does not emulate character competency as well. Uh, but I think you're also hitting on, uh, there's, there's another thing to talk about. I think that... Uh, I have a footnote here. Huh? I have a footnote about the um, So the thing about the curves with the 2d6, uh, 2d6 summed does not actually have what we would, as people, not as mathematicians, but as people, that we would call a curve. It is a pyramid, right? It has like this very sharp pointy bit at the middle and then a very staircase -y kind of effects on either side. Now the thing about that, <laughs> the thing about that is that um, that point uh, sharp, sharply drops off on either side, right? So um, the issue I have with it is that uh, you get very stark results in AW. Like it's like you tip over past a certain point, again with the plus four, you get to a point where there's just like no conversation you get to a minus two on your stat, you, you have like very low conversations about that because it's just, you shouldn't be rolling that. Again, in the spirit of negotiation, right? Blades is a lot about like, okay, well I have a die in this. How do I get more dice, right? And you're like, oh, well, what if this person helps you, right? Does that help you? Like, can you get more dice? Yes. What if I like just, you know, like it really matters to me, can I just push myself and like be awesome, but not all the time, just like when it really matters. Can I yeah. seize the spotlight four Absolutely. times a game? Because mm -hmm. sure. you have a stress. What if, what if I have a special it. move that gives me like a certain context in which I'm better at a thing? Like, yeah, absolutely. And so that spirit of negotiation, that like concept of like, it goes all the way through, right? And so this is why you can't do pluses with 2d6 because 
you lose <laughs> you lose that ability to like what you would probably want to do is actually bigger dice. That, that's actually what I did for Cam once. I showed him what the spread is on D8s, and I explained that if you want to have a game where the GM can adjudicate like plus one, minus one, you should not do it with your D6. You need to go to a bigger die size. Right. Because otherwise it affects the curve too much. Right. right. Like a plus one in AW is much, 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 much more uh, like meaningful than a plus one D. Yeah. So, um, because there are so many points for negotiation and so many ways to get or lose dice in in blades, it makes sense to do it as a die pool. And also, since there are so many of those points of the fiction, it makes sense to do it as a die pool because now you can have lots of adds and uh, subtractions. That said, live your dream. Decide right. whatever you want. If you right. love your two d sixes, you put it back in. No one can stop right. you. And you would So, uh, I want to talk briefly about things that Forge in the Dark are not good at, uh, and then let's talk about questions, because I feel like y'all have some more questions now. Um, couple things we think that Forge in the Dark is not super well suited to. Stories in which the outcome is already known. Um, these are somewhat pejoratively referred to as railroad stories. But these could be any sort of like you are on. You're describing what happens on a historically known tale, and the beginning, middle, and end are kind of all scripted, and like we have some feelings in the middle. That's not what Forge in the Dark does. Forge, find out. Forge is very much about like playing to find out about um, not knowing what the end will bring. This is very much tied into that character agency and the fact that the players can just be like, nah, that doesn't yeah. happen. Formulaic fiction, a lot of um, what I would consider heroic fiction is formulaic. And in that sense, it, Forge in the Dark's not super great at that. It, it can model some pieces of it. It can certainly model the swashbuckling side. But where, it, where it's difficult is like, you expect your heroes to win in the end. And in Forge, that may not work out, right? Actually, that's an important point. In AW, on a six minus, a lot of people wince but it doesn't actually guarantee that you're gonna fail at your task, right? So like in AW, when you roll a six minus, it's called a miss for a reason, it's not called a failure. Because you could succeed on a six minus, the miss condition could just be different, right? Okay. And the GM can choose, no, you succeed, but something bad happens, etc. But in Blades, you can lose. And that, that's an important distinction, right? Like, like you can, when you miss, you actually fail. It may not be your fault, it may not be because you're an incompetent person that rolled a fumble and now you look like a dummy but like the the and it shouldn't it should also never be that yeah <laughs> importantly top top blades jamming hints yeah. <laughs> when a player fails you should be like ah oh, that would have succeeded except you never knew that that person had a personal shield right uh anyway um but more importantly uh yeah you can just like you struggle against powerful forces and blades and one of the pieces of this underdog fiction that somebody mentioned back there um is the fact that you can actually fail. Yeah. And that, that I think that that's an important distinction between uh, Power by the Apocalypse, which you can write that. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you read Dungeon World, it actually talks about that somewhat. But not for every move. Like th They're like, this is how it works, and then they change the rules with moves. But like uh, in Blades, the core mechanic is like, yeah, you roll a one, two, three, you can just fail. You not just fail, but you can't try again. Sorry. And that's that's a thing. And, and some of that can be mitigated with like, 
ah, but can I resist this part of it? But some of it's just like, nope, you've lost the opportunity to act. Person gets away, nothing to be said anymore. Let's deal with it from this point on. And that's, that's an important component of play to find out, right? And the last thing on my list is niche protection. So it's not super great <laughs> at like stay in your lane kind of fiction. Um, it, we, I will say, it's not great at it, but we sometimes play with that. So like if you go to Scum and Villainy, you have playbooks that have starting moves that no other playbook can take. That's weird and it's not very normal to play, but we think it's very good for the style of fiction we're telling. You can break these rules, do so mindfully, and try to do that with an ash. <laughs> oh, sorry, this is called niche protection. Niche yeah. protection. So when you have a particular role in the story, a niche that you yeah, fill. Yeah. So if you're the wizard, you're the person that can cast magic, only you get magic. Nobody right. else gets it, kind of thing. Right? Like, right. like. Blades almost aggressively says if magic is a thing in your world, anyone can do it. Yep. The, uh, in, in Core Blades, and so one of the things that happened is when he transferred Blades in the Dark to the SRD, uh, one of the things that Harper had to do was remove a lot of the setting information. And the way that that was done is he said, oh, well, you can have any number of veteran slots, and the way that it works is here's just a giant pile of skills, make whatever character you want. And, and so uh, that's not true of every Blades game. I, I still get people on forums that are like, that's how it works in Scum and Villainy. I'm like, no, it's not. And they're like, that's the way it works in Blades. I'm like, I know it's not the way it works in Scum and Villainy. But like, the reason for that is if you watch something like Star Wars, right? Like, the Wookiee is the big strong person, and that's their thing. And like, you don't you don't make everybody the big strong person. Not everyone can just become a giant Wookiee, right? Like, the Wookiee does the thing. That's their thing. And so, Scum and Villainy is a different genre, right? But Harper created the base system to be able to make any character you want and, and absolutely refuses to allow any one person to say, like, this is my power and you can't have it, right? So, uh, But importantly, we, we did not do that for Band of Blades, which yep. is a story about soldiers in a legion, and you're a rank and file, yep. and so you have to feel like you're all... You do have specialists, but they have abilities. You can earn those abilities through play. It's, it's very... Uh, it's a different story, and so it has different needs. Uh, questions? <laughs> Anything? You have one more? You have you have a Whatever. Okay. Um, Bring it up. One thing I was always really curious about, like with like PBTA games, just like a lot of like social mechanics, like say deaths and urban shadows, like kind of like ways to pull on like especially strings. CCs and things. Yeah, like strings exactly. And I was like wondering if there's like a good way to like translate those sort of like mechanics in a way that feels forged in the dark and I could never really think of one but I was always curious it might be a weakness of the, of the I don't I don't know that it's a weakness of the system I think that just nobody's made that hack yet yes. right like so we I didn't see can, can I, go ahead oh yeah we didn't see strings until monster hearts right yeah. like it took Avery Alder to add strings to, to PBTA and now everyone's like ah strings uh, I think that there isn't a lot of strings-based mechanics in thief-based fiction and I think that just by the nature of the games that came out right like well, again, high, high octane sci-fi, yeah. you know, like military fiction. You're not going to find a lot of people talking about like the social currency. I think you can find some of it with reputation, and and like maybe that's a place to start hacking. Uh, but the cruciate in particular, like you, you can just add it in. There's no reason why you can't just introduce strings. Right? Well, there's one reason, and that is that what Blades does best is action-driven narratives. Yeah, and so the nice. question is, how much of what you're talking about is action? and how much of it relies on like just people's relationships with each other. Those things, I don't know, but I'd be excited to see someone else attempt to take that on. Did you? Uh, on, on that note, I think the, the 
log down the Ethereum put uh, out a hack that's about favors in Facebook, which works really well in a game that is also about these underworld connections. Ah, uh, yeah. And it, it leverages that idea for, oh yeah, here's this favor currency that uh, I can spend for more social aspects of things. What was the name of the game? Uh, it's the Alexander is a blog. blog. Oh, a Scottish okay. guy, but he writes awesome. a lot about like. I'm gonna go look that up. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think with that transactional sense of it, it might make more sense because then giving someone favor or taking that favor, take advantage of that favor, um, is sort of more actiony, and maybe that works for it. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the. Um the decision to have characters who have used up all their stress for a scene be taken out of the scene. Um, I've played in a couple of games where, honestly, the first couple of games that I, I ran, I completely forgot that that was a thing. Yeah. Because it just didn't feel fun. <laughs> um, and, I, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, on the decision to have that in the design, or if you have ideas lots, for lots alternative, of thoughts. Like, <laughs> alternative costs so, of running out of stress. You don't necessarily, okay, so part of the reason why that's in the game is because um, one of the statements that Harper is making with Blaze in the Dark is that this is more obvious in, in like, for example, Bane of Blades, but like one of the things that he's saying is that the primary character of Blaze in the Dark is actually not your character, it is the crew, right? And so the fact that your character can get taken out uh, is certainly just, like he wants characters to burn out, he wants to show how this hard life is grinding you down and he wants the crew to continue, right? Because it's a larger unit than an individual. Um, so I think that that particular mechanism reflects that. I don't think it's necessary. Um, I think that you could easily just say like, okay, so you can go to egg stress. If your stress is maxed, you can't resist and you can't push, you, you know, you can't activate stress-based powers. And I think that your game will work just fine. Yeah. Like, I, as a matter of fact, I would almost argue that we could have gone that route in Scum and Villainy because like, you don't see passing. You don't see people passing out a whole ton in Star Wars. So, uh, scalability was definitely our first uh, attempt at the problem, and then we did a different thing for Band of Blades. Yep. So, I think there's some element of what story you're telling and how does your story handle when people reach their breaking points. Um, so, for for that, it's like okay. For Band of Blades, our answer was there are all these extra rookies. So if you get taken out and you can't play your character and they're injured or whatever, just pick up a new character and in five minutes make another one. So sort of like if you overindulge. Right, exactly. Just like, ah, your character's busy, like whatever, it's fine. Um, but for Scum and Villainy, I, I sort of regret that we, we approached it earlier in our, like it's, of course you have to do one game first. <laughs> so if I had to do it again, I would definitely re-examine re how we handle like when you hit stress packs. Um, I've seen other things, like Danielle, again, um, has a, a fractures mechanic where um, you get these sort of like weird, um, it's extra dimensional. No, yeah, she, yeah, she described, yeah. Yeah, she so. Just like, almost builds up like a trauma. Yeah. And changes your guy. I think that there's a lot of room there for your story to dictate what happens when you cap out on stress. I think it's important for narratives to change characters in ways that are not just positive. We're used to XP constantly improving our characters, but that's a very linear progression, right? Like you only get better, 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 better. Um, and so I think that this pushback of like, 
the world like chews you up and your experiences may also cause you like to change personality wise right like and obviously that's emulated mechanics right like once you pick up a trauma your character now has an incentive xp to act that way and then you're going to act differently because your trauma is giving you xp but also that's a cool thing to see in the story and then um there, there are some synergistic effects there, and I think that those are super cool and important for us as game designers to talk about because character changes are complicated, right? And I think that in this case, one of the things that's super important is you want to say, hey, I might do a bad thing to you, but it's also kind of a cookie. And like, you did say, hey, I don't want this to happen, so that resistance did trauma you. I'm sorry about that, the rules made me do that. It's John Harper's fault, not mine. Uh, but. Uh, you know, at the same time, like, it's, it's a way to introduce stuff that players don't feel necessarily maybe, like, destroyed for, um, and it provides, like, some new avenues of roleplay and stuff like that. I think it just extends the design conversation. Sure. But I don't, I don't, like, if you want to make characters not pass out in a scene, but maybe still gain a trauma, it's okay. Um, it can lead to some, uh, the only thing that I would caution you about is, um, I have seen players like this, so this is something to consider. Like, maybe you don't care, because don't design for bad faith actors. Like, that, that's one of my primary game design facts, is like, if somebody wants to break your game, they'll break it. So write the game that you want to write for the people that want to play it, and don't worry about the people that are, like, intentionally trying to, like, damage it. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a table slash social problem, not a, not a game problem. Um, the, uh, one, of, one of the things that, that you might encounter is people that drive their characters like stolen cars will just be like, great, I get a trauma, am I still up? Is my stress bar clear? Clear. I'm just gonna burn another eight stress, so I get a trauma, no problem. And they'll just treat characters as dis disposable and move really fast through that. So one of the things that happens is that that pass out mechanic um, stops the overdrive, right? Like it, it, it tells you like, hey, but you're gonna take it out of the scene. And particularly people that like playing to like 15, like they go well past 11, right? Like they'll, they'll be like, oh, but then I, I don't really get another spotlight. So I guess that's a bad thing. So maybe I'll be a little bit more cautious now. So like, um, it's just something to consider from a design perspective. Real quick, the game that had that fractures mechanic, that yeah. you, you both, what, what is it? It's the called Ripple Effects. Yeah, yeah it's, it's here, it's still right a design. Now. Danielle has a, a bunch of really cool stuff out. Go talk to her. Um, I'm really excited to see what she does with it. You can tell that we're like, read through the sheets, we're like, oh, is there a new fork to the guy? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> oh, maybe she's sad for me. But yeah, if you, if you hit me up on Twitter, I've been tweeting about the games I've been in. I managed to get to play it. It's, it's real cool. Um, yeah. I have been tweeting. I, I am not very much. Hilariously, I tweet all the time when I'm not at a con. When I'm at a con, I'm too busy playing games. Yeah. It's like the only time I do tweet. Uh, do we have? I don't want to stop questions if you have them, but I do have a little bit more that I want to talk about. So if you if you'll bear with me, I want to talk about how to attack a new game because I don't think it's really actually that big. Um, this is the advice I give to everyone. I just gave it to you, I'm gonna give it to you again because I feel that passionately about it. The most important thing you can do about making a new game is to figure out what your game is about, right? Understand the story you're trying to tell, the genre it, it falls within, the characters that you're gonna see in that story, the action beats that you wanna see, the, the drama beats that you wanna see, and kind of figure out what, what do I want to have happen? And if that fits with Forge in the Dark, cool. Then the next bit is to start looking at specific things. Um, Hold up each of these pieces that we wrote on the board and evaluate it against your metric. Right? Yeah. If you've decided that your game is about X, ask how that particular piece supports your X 
and then either apply it or don't. Yeah. Start with, you probably want, it, it's almost not negotiable, position and effect, uh, more or less exactly as written. <laughs> it's fine to just take that. Uh, take the core mechanics of stress, uh, resistances, and uh, I don't even know what I wrote here. Stress resistances? Stress is actually resistance plus pushes. Oh, that's probably what it is, pushes. Um, yeah, take those core mechanics, all, all of the ones that surround stress, and then add in actions. And when you go to do actions, think about what are the things that I see people doing in this story. So there was this really good example in Scum Villainy, where we watched a ton of like Star Wars and Cowboy Bebop and a bunch of other like sci-fi-y shows, and boy howdy, do those people run a lot. <laughs> like, There's a lot of running, good lord. There's just so much running. Doctor Who, it's like 90% running. And so scramble became an action, even though like that's not an action in like the core, um, you know, Blades in the Dark. And it's not the kind of thing that you would even want in Blades in the Dark, but it's something that really works in the fiction of like a sci-fi romp across the you know, rim of the galaxy. Um, there's plenty of world building opportunities inside the actions themselves. And just the word choices you make on those actions can make a huge difference. It's the difference between scrap, which is a sci-fi term that we use for like, ah, I'm getting a scrap, versus a skirmish, which is the right. made of place term. Practically the same action, but it ends, uh, it, it lends a very different atmosphere and feeling. Right. And uh, just to tack on to what John said, when you're watching a movie, like if, you, if you're gonna make a particular genre-based thing, don't make it just one thing, because if you emulate one thing too strongly, it's it's not going to have like the flex and the broader appeal and the deeper thematic elements. It's going to be like a, a, a puppetry show where it's like literally reflecting the actions of a specific thing. And two, um, it helps to watch multiple things. Like Cowboy Bebop and Star Wars are very different genres. Like one is almost noir. I maintain that Cowboy Bebop is an epilogue after the main action of the people's lives happened. Things like that, and whereas Star Wars is very much like the the, the initial like build up and ramp up to the people's like big stage presence, yeah. and so when you find the similar similarities between the two, that overlap is where you're going to find a lot of your actions. Yeah. One of the things that I kept asking myself while watching is, what are they doing right now? And then I just wrote that <coughs> down. And then every once in a while, you'll write down a couple of different words. You're like, oh, it's a combination of negotiate and like persuade. And I was like, eh, it's probably just one skill, you know. And, uh, you, you can trick it down to like fit into your little uh, 16 block. If you do three skills per block, that's okay. You can even shrink it down and just use the main things. Like um, my recommendation is before you know what your actions are, don't worry about it. Just make it inside prowess uh, resolve. Give them some dice for that. You need to roll a resolve skill, just roll your resolve. And the game will hold up. Um, like uh, if I get to plug one product, I'm so sorry. Um, we, I, I, one of the things that I, I do do is I, Every game that I make, I try to make it accessible so that people. So I don't. I, I hope that all of you know the game mechanics are not copyrightable. So uh, one of the things that I hope is that people read a game and then take bits and then do cool stuff with it, right? So uh, one of the things that I did was I wrote this tiny little game called Into the Dark, um, and what it has is a modified core blades mechanic that is only two pages long. And part of the reason that I do that is there is no crew sheet. I stripped out a lot of stuff so you don't have weird, uh, fictionalized wounds. I, I just put it right back to hit points, and I try and keep it as simple as possible so that 
instead of people feeling like they have to write 43 factions and a city and a core mechanic and 32 powers and all these playbooks and other stuff, you can like shrink it down to something that's tiny and then look at that and look at full blades and then start like adding pieces until you have something that looks roughly like what you want. Because uh, I think John and I are both huge believers in trying to do the minimum possible to get a game to a table. Yeah. Because in my opinion, the way where games grow, where they, like, you can't write a game without playing, like, uh, games are meant to be played, right? Like, the true act of a game is in the process of play. It's not in the, the, the text. It's not in, in my imagination. It's in the act of play, right? So what's going to inspire you, what's going to drive your design is playing. And I think that one of the problems with Fortune and Dark is that the SRD is so big and people don't know what they can throw away that they tend to overwrite for their first pass and it's kind of a monumental monstrosity that's like 40 plus pages. And I think that you can really, really, really shrink that down so that you can just play that one job and see what that feels like and then start modifying from there. Right, yeah, I was just about to say so. Uh, cool. Um, I have two open questions. One is about crew sheets, one is about gear. Are there any other questions that I should answer before people take off? Cool. Related to that, yeah. Playbooks in general. Uh, awesome. Just, like, where to start with that. Yeah, we'll talk. Um, and there's a little bit of time after this. Like we're not rushing away, so if you have bandwidth, we can be here for a little bit. Well, uh, probably we can't outside, be here. So I want to be respectful of whoever's having the next thing. So yeah. you had a question about crew sheets. Yeah, like alternate uses for alternate uses. So I've seen um, I've seen Ships. story themes where it's like this is uh, the kind of story that you're telling. This, this thing that I'm doing tells multiple stories in the same narrow band. Um, that's sort of what we did with ships. Um, so secretly ships are kind of like stories where each ship is like, you have like the smuggling ship and you have like the uh, sort of uh, rebellion ship and you have the uh, bounty hunter ship, right? So it's like, there's a little bit of story that's associated with that. And if you think about like, I want something cool that represents the story and like, how do I make that into a crew? Uh, like, that is going to give you a lot of um, sense to your to your mechanics. So, like uh, Danielle's game, Ripple Effect, is about extra-dimensional travelers like trying to save their their doomed Earth. And so, for her, the crew sheet is the dimension, right? So that makes sense. Although the dimension itself tells you the story of what's going on in that dimension. So, like. There's, there's a tie there. Even though the physical artifact is like the dimension, the actual thing that it's doing is the story of that dimension, if that makes sense. So I, I think of it as breaking it up by story. And you think, if you look at uh, Blades of Dark, it's the same thing. You have like, you have smugglers, you have thieves, you have assassins, you have those, and those stories are different, right? So they have different narrative beats, they have different main characters, and, and that, you know, that tie on the crew sheet, that really helps. It mostly helps get everybody on the same page. If you've written 40 pages on the topic of what the same page is, the crew sheet is only useful because most people will not read your book and somebody will teach it at the table. Um, and this helps give you like a visual indicator, but there's lots of ways to do that. That said, we threw it all out for Band of Blades and did something completely different. So, <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, ships came from the fact that Harper was like, one of the key tenets of this is that you have to have a claims grid. And I was like, John, we're making yeah, nothing without nope. a claims grid. <laughs> so. Turns out. Uh, so um, specifically with uh, Band of Blades, what we did was we had two different components. We had uh, Chosen, which represent a lot of the story elements that we're talking about. 
and we had generals which represent a lot of the mechanical elements that we're talking about. And so those two pieces together are kind of, are like, kind of like what we would call the cruise sheet. It's like in four or five different pieces. So you can get very complicated with it. You can do a lot mechanically with it. Uh, so I encourage you to play with that space. Uh, does that answer your question? Yes, thank Excellent. Uh, gear. Uh, so you were talking about how do you make gear interesting? Yeah, like sort of, not necessarily. Like my problem was like figuring out how to make like a block and sort of like tell a story about the like what the playbook's like yeah. just by like just having like one phrase and like having sure. that like something to give you like oh this is what this thing is. Absolutely, like, yeah. Weird gear is our thing, right? Yeah. So like we do we do that a lot. A lot of it is about encouraging you to think about the gear in a different sense than what does it do. So if you think about it purely from a utilitarian perspective, it's actually going to be not very interesting. You're going to get like, oh, well, it's a grappling hook. Put that in the common gear. Right? Exactly. That's fine. But um, what you really want to think about is the culture and context for around the gear. Where does this where does this thing come from? And so we don't have like grappling hooks in Beta Blades. We have like uh, Orite zip lines that are designed by machine priests, right? And so like you get this like whole culture around it and like where is this thing from? And the more uh, you can speak to that, like the more interesting your world becomes, the more uh, engaging your gear becomes. Have fun with it. Yeah. Like if you read so John and I divvy up the text writing. John writes like 90% of the text. So if you're reading any of our books, the majority is his voice. But I do all the gear descriptions, and usually John is like, just do it. And I'm like, and you can tell because like I'm really goofy. Because like I'm just like, blaster. I'm like, it's a gun. And then I delete that. I'm like, give me a few, mandatory, you make these sounds. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. So like that's literally the description. It's gun ability. Okay, gone. Exactly. Sure. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, does that answer that question? Yeah, yeah. Does. Excellent. Cool. Uh, any other questions before we break? Awesome. You Thank, guys you awesome. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.